the the location is not a backdrop. You know, mm -hmm. I I believe where you're from does inform your life. It does it forms you. I believe the city breathes. The city gives life. The city takes life. Like the city is an active character. And when when it's grounded that way, the interactions of the characters in the city, they don't feel like you're just placing a story in a location. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Angel Manuel Soto's new drama, Charm City Kings. The film tells the story of 14-year-old Mouse, who desperately wants to join the Midnight Click, an infamous group of dirt bike riders who rule the Baltimore streets. When the Midnight Click's leader takes Mouse under his wing, the lure of rubbing his own dirt bike skids him towards a road past the straight and narrow. In addition to Charm City Kings, Mr. Soto's directorial credits include the feature films The Farm and Frailty. Mr. Soto spoke with director Derek C. in France about filming Charm City Kings in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Derek C. in France, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Angel Manuel Soto, uh, and we're going to be talking about his film, Charm City Kings. Um, how are you today, Angel? Thank you, man. Thanks for having us. I'm great, man. I'm, I'm excited and I'm humbled to be here. And, uh, and you know, I'm honored to, to, to have this conversation with you, man. Uh, big fan here. <laughs> Me too, man. It's mutual. Um, I want to know, first off from you, what is it like to release this movie during a pandemic? Well, definitely that was not the plan. Uh, I'm not expected. Uh, uh, we, we, we were headed, I, I believe, to about 1,300 theaters uh, on April 17, which was special because April 17 is my father's birthday. So it was kind of like, ah, oh, you know, that's great. This is going to happen there. And while we were at the Miami Film Festival uh, in March, that's when things started to start shut down. Uh, we had our screening and right off the bat, the next day, the festival got canceled. So the second screening couldn't happen. And that's when everybody started like reshuffling, see what's going to happen. Everybody was expecting like, maybe, maybe it's going to be done by the summer. So let's aim for August. That whole thing kept stretching on until uh, I guess Sony started making some decisions of releasing films in 2021, etc. And and Warner Brothers, that's when they came in and and bought it from from them. Now at first I was like, ah, oh, it's going to streaming. Like we made it for the theater. We did the whole 5.1. Actually, we did 7.1 uh, because we wanted to live inside the whole. Uh, like the Sunday ride, like being there, the noises of the two-stroke, the four-stroke bikes, like everything, the people is just so immersive. And with this such an immersive way, all the tracking shots that move, like they were binarial, like you can see the music go behind you. Like we really put a lot of effort to that. And uh, so we were very excited to see that reaction on, on, on the theater, the way people reacted to it at Sundance, which was very crazy. Like I've never seen people stand up in the middle of the movie clapping like it was a basketball game. And, and, uh, and that energy, we were hoping for that. But uh, after seeing the way HBO Max was handling the marketing and the whole release uh, campaign, the, the, the update they did to the poster of the artwork, their attention to details, it really gave me peace. And once the release came out, uh, breaking records on, on streaming during the month of October, uh, that was actually reassuring, knowing that you know, now not only people that were going to be able to see it in the States uh, at that same time, uh, but those people and other, other people that were not going to be able to see it at the same time were all watching it simultaneously. Like in Puerto Rico, we did a thing there that people could watch it and they could have HBO Max for, I don't know, a period of time. And you know, millions of people watch it as opposed to who knows how many would have gone to the theater to see it. So at the other day, it was like, yeah, we made it for, for the movie going experience, but in service of the message and the target audience that we were trying to reach with that message, uh, the, the, the streaming platform actually served that purpose pretty well. 
yeah, it it had a it had a reach, but and it sounds like mm-hmm. you were able to at least you had those moments at Sundance where you actually had that interaction <laughs> yeah. with an audience. Oh which, yeah, man, that was so that was far really away fun. now. You you were like the last some of the last <laughs> to really play and have that that feeling, you know? Um, yeah, man, I don't take that lightly. I'm like, you know, I guess everything happens for a reason. If we're talking that language. And um and you know it happened when it needed to happen and um the things that are happening now, however great they might be, um in all of this needed to happen to be in the place where we're at now. So, you know, it's kind of like um I'm not gonna make a movie with less passion just because it's going to a streaming service. Absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely not. Um let me let me ask you. I'm I'm curious about you and your journey to becoming a, a filmmaker. I I know you you know you 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 were an artist first, a, a muralist, right? But I just kind of want to know how did you become uh how did you become a filmmaker? Well, um, I I studied advertising and architecture. That's what I did first. And uh, during that whole time of me figuring it out, what I wanted to do, I guess from very early, I always wanted to be involved in, in the audiovisual uh, uh, industry of some sorts. Um, I didn't have much language. I knew that I wanted to be a director, but I didn't have access to, to film school nor the money to go and study abroad. So um, I went with architecture and advertising. Um, but I still started, you know, do, going out of my way and do some TV stuff. So I started in TV uh, as a PA. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I think they were paying me like 600 bucks a month, something like yes. that. It was, it wasn't, it was like a very entry level gig. What year? And but I, you know, what, what this? Year? I was 19. I was 19. So right, um, right out of the gate, though. You're starting right. You're starting. Yeah, starting yeah. I was. Start. Yeah, super early. And um, so that I started like working my way up a little bit. Then I started producing, I started directing. Um, I, I finished studying and I did a little bit of advertising. Um, and then I went on to do short films. And I think that experimenting with the short film, that's when I was able to really like direct something and, and, and fall in love with it. And through that whole journey, um, you know, I became friends with a lot of like the artist community in Puerto Rico and Everyone started helping each other out. That's where like all the the intersectionality that exists between uh, the the street art in the island and that community combined with the the people that that do commercials, movies, short films. We started to develop like our own thing and energy until uh, I directed my first film, La Granja, in 2012. It took us forever to finish it, but when it did. Uh, uh, that's when I ended up uh, in LA uh, to finish the music and stuff like that. I also came after my now fiance. She was the one that really brought me to LA. She came here first before I did. Um, so I came after her. The movie got selected in Fantastic Fest and that's how everything started like popping up, reading scripts until 2017 because I was playing with VR at the time. Uh, trying to get some bread and butter uh, in the mix. And in 2017, after Hurricane Maria passed, that's about the time that I got the script for Charm City Kings, which at the time was called um, 12 O'Clock Boys. And it was the draft that Barry Jenkins had written, uh, one of the first drafts. Um, And that's how the journey started. And, you know, a year later, we started shooting and, and, and here we are. Well, wow, that's pretty quick. When you get <laughs> I guess. To, 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 to shooting. What was it about um, the project? Um, I mean, were you familiar with the documentary? Um, yeah, yeah. You- I, w- I was familiar with 12 O'Clock Boys uh, before I jumped in. And, and I was very familiar, of course, with Barry Jenkins' uh, work before. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that I was, I guess, struggling with, but it's also a passion still, you know, the representation in terms of the way Hollywood and 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 the world, for that matter, have seen Puerto Ricans has always been very 
uh, one-dimensional. Uh, or either we're gangsters, West Side Story, or we're Latin lovers, or you know we're drug dealers, Carlitos way. You know what I mean? Like it's always been something like that. I, I, I'm more times than none, people don't know really where we came from and what's our history. So I really wanted to see how to tell stories, not literally biopics, but tell the the Puerto Rican experience in a way. Um, and at first, and I don't, I don't know it's still, but I know that at first I was getting a lot of rejection. You know, nobody cares about Puerto Rico. Or like, Puerto Rico is not a, uh, it's not a profitable community, whatever. Um, but when I, I, I got the script, if you change Baltimore for Puerto Rico and if you change Mouse for Pepe or something, you have a truly authentic Puerto Rican story there about a journey close to the journey of me and my friends and a bunch of other kids back home growing up. Uh, and once I was in Baltimore, I was able to realize that, yeah, that's true. Like there, there is not that much difference between Baltimore and Puerto Rico. And overall, there's not that much difference between marginalized communities and disenfranchised youth in terms of the systematic oppression that exists and the neglect and the lack of opportunities. So being able to tell a story from the point of view of a kid that's ju that just wants to be a kid, but lives in this world, um, it is a story that I feel like, you know, um, I, I can embrace Mouse's journey and I can tell my story through Mouse because it is not that different. Um, and also, you know, there's, I've, I've been talking a lot about the intersectionality of things, but, um, you know, uh, black people and Puerto Ricans have always been really tight, especially in the in the East Coast. And that journey of us coming together and really telling our stories and telling the things the way are, you know, that was the birth of hip hop in a way. So when when put it that way, um, that welcoming and hospitality that I felt while making this story, it almost served as an invitation to like, you know what, if your story is my story, let's tell it together. So that's really when it came through, because at the end of the day, Jada Pinkett is from Baltimore. Uh, Will Smith is from Philly. Uh, Caleb is from Baltimore. Like it, this, this was their love letter to their city. Um, and choosing me to tell it, 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 I saw it as an honor. So for me that, um, and they also saw it as an opportunity, like let, let's tell your story as well. Let's bring that, let's bring what you have and you feel until the story of our community. That's that's beautiful. So you got that script that was the Barry Jenkins script, and then how? And then there's and then there's two other uh, or there, there's another uh, there's other writers on it. Yeah. So how did how did you did you work with the other writers to kind of influence or 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 to talk about how to how to make it this personal journey for you or was was it did it already exist on the page in that way? So yeah, it was a little bit of both. By the time I got in, they were already working on some notes with Sherman Payne. Um, and Sherman Payne, he, he brought a lot of the, um, the levity and, and the banter and the energy that, that the kids have with yes. each other, the authenticity of, of the dialogues and, and the bullying and all that stuff. And, um, and definitely that, that was something that the earlier script was a little bit more uh, introspective. It was a little bit more quiet. Um, so when when Sherman was working on it, the the ideas that it was presenting to the to the production team uh, were very much in line with what Sherman was writing as well. So Sherman writing based on his experiences, uh, and me coming in with a, a vision based on my experiences, it, we were going on parallel wave, wavelengths, really. Um, so in, in that back and forth of notes and ideas, Sherman did an amazing job in really putting it all together, keeping the backbone that Barry, um, uh, established at the beginning, uh, having it there solidifying the script. And based on that, uh, Sherman was able to, to build his own language, apply with, you know, the things that were to do. A lot of the things were not on the paper, uh, in terms of tone, maybe. Um, so being able to bring that tone to the paper, uh, had a, a, a very cool impact in the way some of the, the scenes were, uh, executed. 
and therefore carrying this emotional arc for Mouse to be a pivotal one, you know, when his bike gets stolen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was very drawn to that, to that joy. I mean, having made some uh, serious dramatic movies, <laughs> yeah. past, I know that, and I've failed on this many times, uh, is like, you need to have some, you need to have humor and levity and joy in order to feel that sometimes, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not, you know, cause you have a lot of heavy stuff happening in this story. And I thought uh, that, yeah. balance, that balance was, um, was, uh, was really, really well handled and necessary. You know, we, we the yeah. audience need that. They need to fall in love with those, with those people. Um, mm-hmm. So can you do, but I wanted to also ask you about, you know, you bring up the script how it seems to me and correct me if I'm wrong, you're also embracing real people, right? There's actors in here, but there's also people. I mean, you know, some of the writers and I'm just wondering about the community and how then, how then that all worked together. Once you started casting this and putting this world together, how, how you brought that community in to the making of this film and because if it felt communal, it felt it felt like a lot of people yeah. were making this with you. Yes, one hundred percent. You know, I was basing a lot of the way I because I, uh, I did the same thing on, on on my first film. Almost everybody doesn't. Everybody there is is not an actor except for a couple of them, who have uh, you know strong leads, and um, and everything that I use there as a set or a, a, as a location are places that I grew up in. So uh, having the people love the project or love the idea of the project, even when we went to the, to, to the projects and, and they're doing, you know, they're doing the work there, uh, their, their deals, they were very welcoming. They were like, okay, we'll move our operations to the other corners so that you can shoot here. Like it was like very communal. And, and that experience for me, I always feel is very important when, when I did a lot of documentaries with Riot News, um, I, I never liked the idea of, of just touch and go, as if those people don't have a story to tell, as, as if like, this is so, I've never liked that, because I really never enjoyed when, when films are shot in Puerto Rico and they do the same thing. Uh, nobody gets invested in the community and, and they just show a slastic portrayal of who people are. And, born out of that we wanted to do the same thing with Charm City Kings it is a subculture that exists around the world but Baltimore is literally the mecca of of um of bike life and and they're very this is their this is their art they they perfected this art which became their expression of freedom and it's very empowering to see them in this doing their art because it's literally the only moment they feel free and um and it's not about speed it's not about getting faster it's about doing something and they are so good at it that they take pride to the point that the documentary became very successful and showed a subculture that is very appealing and and compelling and and but with that uh the the producers were very smart caleb uh knew um Chino and they all knew a lot of the writers there uh, that we knew, we knew that we needed to have them be a part of the film. Because <clears throat> for example, Chino, Chino is the one that has got the sponsoring from like Under Armour and Monster. Like he's like with Rock Nation, like he, he's in a level where, where, where the sport now is profitable with sponsors. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just like, it's like what happened with graffiti. People were, ah, that's vandalizing. And now people are paying thousands of dollars for street art and murals and Banksy's from the wall, you know? Yeah. And, and the same thing happened. It will happen with this. And, but it was very important to keep the community involved because one, you know, I am, I, this is not my community. So as much as they could and as much as, 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 as we could, uh, we had them keep us in check in terms like, we don't say it that way. Or like, you know, we wouldn't say a, a, that phrase, um, learning the mannerisms. And people were very involved and people loved being in the, in, in, as extras. Like, um, for example, like Chino and Queen, they're writers themselves. 
Mm. Uh, and they're probably like the best at what they do. Uh, in terms for this to happen, like we, we had um, Willie Wayne, who is the godfather of bike culture, if, if I can say that. And it was him who was able to call people in, writers to come. And all those people that you see standing are, are people from the 12 O'Clock Boys crew. Uh, the Midnight Click, those were guys from the 12 O'Clock Boys crew and the Go Hard Boys from Harlem. So we really brought this authenticity to the project. And Willie Wayne was really the one that was able like, to make it happen. Uh, I'm sure like without his blessing, this probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, we use Bike, uh, we, we use Pug, who is the lead, uh, the main character of the documentary. He plays the brother, um, uh, Stro, who gets killed. Coco plays herself, literally. Yeah. That's the, when they're at the porch and she's dancing, she's like the really funny one. Yeah, um, yeah. Coco, she's, she's Pug's mom in the documentary. Wow. So like we really went to embrace all of them. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something more. And I think this is like probably the proudest moment for, I, I think, in my career so far. And, 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 and on the film, we were, the, the guy that steals the bike, uh, Derek, his name is uh, Marvin Rahim. He wasn't, he wasn't the actor we casted for that. We casted, uh, we casted another actor, uh, a great talent from Baltimore. And, um, and I guess the day before, we're going to shoot the scene where he steals the bike. The stone coordinator, uh, Kevin, comes to us and, and tells us that we have a problem. Uh, the actor can't ride the bike. Uh, we tried, he can ride it. And we were trying like a really small bike. And that bike is like a 400. So it's like a heavy one. And so we were like, okay, we need to like think quick. And Marvin, he's been coming to set every day since the beginning without having to be there. He was just there five o'clock in the morning there so the first week we noticed he's one of the writers super talented that moment at the end that somebody like uh uh is recording himself and then somebody takes the phone from him that's marvin and that was the first week and when we saw that we were like oh well he's mad talented let's um you're gonna do it and we were like oh so you can write yeah yeah i can write can you act it's like nope i've never acted in my life so we're like well this is gonna be your first time and we went for it. So at first, you know, he broke the ice. That's the moment where he's asking, let me take a bike. Uh -huh. He does that whole bit. But then he started getting comfortable, which is when he steals it. And, you know, we did two takes of that. He's, yeah. he was, he's so good that we only had to do two takes of that whole one. And, um, and after that, you know, we had three weeks of break before he had to do the scene where he gets beat up. He gets beat up. So during those three weeks, we took advantage of that and we had him with an acting coach. We had him with the stunt coordinator and they practiced everything. And he performed that whole scene himself, somebody who's never acted before. Fast forward to that, he was able to do stunts on Bad Boys 3. And now he found his calling. I'm, I'm an actor, a stunt actor. He never thought this was going to be something for him. And now here you go. Like this opportunity really made him find his purpose in life. And the beauty of it all is that it was some, somebody from Baltimore, from the crew, a writer. And for me, like having his blessing is more than enough, you know? Yeah, man. Uh, and that's, the fact, and that's the fact that he loved it was great. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I thought his moment in the garage too was especially poignant uh, when he said, mm -hmm. I, I forget the exact line, but that everyone needs to eat or something. Um, yeah, everyone's got to eat. Is that what is that the line? Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, why are you doing me like that? And he's like, well, we all gotta, we all gotta eat. Yeah, exactly. That was uh, I, I thought yeah. he was, I thought he was poignant. And I, but I have a question. We, I have so much to ask you, but okay, this is a <laughs> technical question. Um, you can write all these things in a script about all these stunts and tricks and everything, and obviously you have people, you have these writers that have that can do it. But then mm -hmm. you have a movie and you have uh, a responsibility also as the filmmaker for safety, right? And, yeah. and so I'm watching it and I know from having shot a movie with motorcycles that to get a scene without them wearing helmets took like six months of lettering <laughs> and training and convincing. So how did you navigate all of those stunts 
that were really, they were really doing it and people were really putting themselves at risk and just the balance and the responsibility of you as a filmmaker then, uh, you know, yeah. taking care of those people, but knowing they can do it. Yeah, it, it's, um, it definitely was a, a situation that we took seriously, you know, like, um, because one, yeah, we don't want any accidents, period. Two, we don't want any accidents with talent that still have scenes to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and three, you know, definitely kids cannot do that. So we, we, we talked to them, right? We, 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 we had a conversation with them. And even though they're not stunt people, right? They did have uh, a little bit of training in terms of with the stunt coordinator, uh, in terms of like the the spatial awareness of the camera, all that stuff, like be like the whole idea of like we're we're coming at you, but we're not gonna hit you as long as you know that you can. Re- so they were very they picked up on it, and they were like, if there's something we do, is this, and you know, it's part of like the whole. Uh, I don't want to say it's it's part of the whole confidence, like. We invented this thing. We know how to do it. Don't worry. And, um, and they were very respectful. They were very, like, they felt like, stop, they stopped. You know, they were escorted. Um, at times, it has to be with a helmet. And we told them, so we were like, you know, let's do, we can only do this three, we can only do three takes. Do two with the helmet and the last one, take it out. And then, you know, say, all right, then you say your thing and you, I can do what I want. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's interesting. But at the end of the day, they were like, helmets actually affect us because it takes off balance from what we're doing. Yes. Like the more weight on my head, like it's just, it, it, it's a whole balance thing. Like you're literally, they're, they're, they are tap dancing while popping and wheeling. Yes. Any, anything that just takes you away could be a problem. So they feel, they feel comfortable, more comfortable without helmets. They actually feel like we could get in an accident with a helmet. Like that was kind of like their, their energy. So everybody involved really took it seriously. We, we tried to not expose them as much as we could. And the fact of the matter is like this subculture is just, it's like that. If you want it authentic, sure, some people will ride with helmets, but the goal is do that whole tap dancing thing as free as possible mm-hmm. and um so we made it work we had the the safety guy there and he was definitely on us and and but we were able to to pull it off in short takes like they're so pro at what they do that we really didn't have to do it again because they missed it you know what i mean like it could be oh maybe it's like a technical problem maybe something over there like it, it had nothing to do with their professionalism yes. so they're not going that up. after they're, a couple of days of yeah after a couple of days up. of proving that they were like okay it's gonna be fine yeah i i found that too uh, sometimes when i've done stunts the stunt men and the stunt people stunt men and women are always on get it get it done it's like us me behind the camera who who who's forgotten <laughs> something or messed something up uh-huh no they got it on point and the drivers and and we had, you know, it wasn't just them. There were a couple stunt, uh, stunt people there that um, that were also doing some wheelies. That you know, they were they were kind of like a being in charge of the choreography and the whole yeah. thing. And and the cars driving, they were all like like stunt for real. So they were there to protect them yes. from any accidents, as opposed to them being risky and and whatever. They don't fall. You know what I mean? Like they have fallen enough. To be in a place where they don't fall that's and they 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 brag about it like yeah we don't fall man that's not our thing so it's like a whole it's a whole thing of of, of a little bit of respect understanding the culture as well and you know you're not gonna force it you're not gonna force it on them and make it uncomfortable it, it only makes things worse when somebody feels so comfortable doing something they're good at absolutely you have to let them show you yeah man they this is your that's that scene of them writing it literally was like, this is your time. Like, if you have cops chasing you all the time, this is your time to actually have the cops escort you to set. And you can do whatever you want. This is your moment to shine. Let's show the world what you guys can do. 
Man, that's how we got what we got. Because we let them do what they're good at. That must have been an amazing night of shooting, right? Because it was great. It was fun. It was like, yeah, it was great. The energy was just there. I mean, right? I mean, it was... And I think you, I think you balance that throughout the whole making of your movie—the energy of the city, the energy of that subculture—with mm-hmm. this narrative yeah. at you know in the center of it all, and these actors. I, yeah, I, I well, I mean, the, the the I like with my first film, La Granja, and with this one, the the location is not a backdrop. You know, mm-hmm. I I believe where you're from does inform your life it does it forms you and uh it's not just a pretty wall it's not just like us like it's not just for the purpose of it looking pretty i believe the city breathes the city gives life the city takes life like the city is an active character uh in all of my films whether it is a fake city or not and when when it's grounded that way the interactions of the characters in the city they don't feel like you're just placing a story in a location uh, it, it, it is part of the story. It is part of their character's life, their dialogue, the way they react, the music is so, the city is so alive all the time yes. that it just does a disservice to not be able to immerse the audience in, an exp- in the same experience that I had and the experience that they have constantly and daily. Well said. And, it, and in, in some ways, these characters, I feel like are immersed into a place where there's certain choices for them right and i and i i found that mm-hmm. very compelling with mouse's story is that i felt like he was constantly at a crossroads uh where he would yeah. make make a choice and can you talk about that how you how you dealt with how you dealt with this idea of choice and and the representation of that choice I, choice i was really thinking about like blacks versus detective rivers you know right. Like as, yeah. as as the culmination of choice, what like is that is that Mouse's choice? One of those to be one of those guys, like, or to be pieces of each of those guys? I mean, what yeah. what, what is it? I, I'm curious how you see choice. Well, um, one of the things that that I guess was the main theme that we were all dealing with uh, on, on the development was definitely the topic of mentorship. And, and coming from the place of lack of mentorship that exists in, in a lot of uh, black and brown communities. And um, so we wanted to present a kid that goes through, you know, a fatherless kid that has an opportunity to encounter uh, two forces that, well-intentioned forces that want to mentor him. Uh, they all want the same thing for him. Um, but they all, they both go different ways for me personally, the, the, the combination of those two mentors, it's probably the closest thing to a father, uh, in, in, in this world, uh, a little bit of both things. Um, and the fact that, you know, we wanted to present a cup, not the way cups are, but the way we see, or we want cops to be, um, and take care of the kid in the community. And we also wanted to present the, the, the other mentor where comes from a background of experience and now he wants to do right, and do right by him. So being able to bring those crossroads at the end of the day, um, it just shows the complexities of what it's like to live in a, in a, in a world fatherless and the expectations that comes when, when you live in a world like that. Um, I, I was blessed to have both my parents in my family, but my dad, he never met his dad. So, um, him growing fatherless and him having to be, he being the youngest, having to be the man of the house at age eight, because his brothers, uh, went crazy. It's a lot of pressure to put on a kid and you know kids want to do things they want to have fun and all, all that stuff so a lot of mistakes are made but there's always a crucial time or not always but you know it's usually during a crucial time that instantly you have to grow up and be a kid now the other topic that we wanted to talk was uh, not talk uh, subtextually talk about was the topic of toxic masculinity and how the perceptions or the expectations of, of black and brown boys on what a man is supposed to be 
is usually distorted, right? Like we're having those conversations right now. I didn't grow up with those conversations. I had a distorted version of what a man is supposed to be. And now I'm 38 and now is that I'm learning, you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to open up. It's like, it's, there's a lot of stuff that you grow up with that you often deem weak. That is the embracing of it, right? So for us, the problem, because they're not perfect mentors, the problem of the mentorship that they had is that stain that comes in with toxic masculinity. Like, you know, that's not how a man behaves. Like, da, 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 da. like don't, you know, be a man. Like, it's all comes from a, from a, you know, he doesn't want to do harm to the kid. It comes from a place of ignorance. And it's literally that bad mentorship in a way, or, or the lack of, of judgment in that mentorship that drives Mouse to do what he wanted to, what he did. Because he goes like, you know, boys sit down and wait, men go out and get it. It's a distortion of what men has to be. Yeah. But that was also the flaw of these two mentors. So I didn't want to paint a perfect mentor. Yeah. Because uh, I do believe a combination of both, of the, the good parts of both, will make the right mentorship. And at the end of the day, you know, the mother also plays an integral part in that other side of the mentorship that, um, that a kid at that age is just so reckless and angry and, and rebelling towards all these sorts of authority, especially from a cop and a mother, uh, that sadly, a lot of us, we have to hit the ground really, really hard to accept the truth that has been uh, spoken through us all along. And um, so I feel like at the end of the day, I, I, I'm also kind of a, or used to be kind of like a bleak person in terms of how to see the world. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I noticed that a little bit of hope goes a long way. And we're really? not saving the problems of the world. We're not. You used to be a bleak person. Sorry. You were. Uh, you have to see that. Like, you have to watch La Granja and you tell okay. me if I'm bleak or okay. not. <laughs> what changed? What yeah. Changed? Like, what like, changed yeah, you, like, yeah. Like, because this I have this five nieces. Hope. Yeah. I have five nieces. And, um, and you know, if, if I want, if I want the future of the island, to go somewhere is not denying the realities of life. It's not hiding or keeping anybody from the truth because the truth can be hard and, and, and the realities, the struggles are, are real. But if I don't at least show that there's hope, then what's the point of, of, of living, right? What's the point of doing this all the time? If it was the point of, 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 uh, of wanting, of longing uh, a free Puerto Rico if there's no hope. So like, that started to dawn on me and that actually came from, from my nieces, seeing them grow and doing the hurricane and all that stuff. And I was like, I, I, don't, I want them to know life. I want them to understand this suffering and I wanted them to really have this um, critical uh, approach to, to, to life. But if there's a little bit of hope, at least, it's all it's worth it. You know, for example, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna use this much is true as an example. Mm. Like I I love that show, and 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 you know it is it is a hard journey to experience, but the ending wouldn't have been as powerful and poignant if it wasn't for the enduring of his trials. So maybe it's a little bit at the end that you see it. There's hope at the end, but yeah. it just shows you with life. It might be hard, ups and downs, but it's, it can be worth it. You know what I mean? Like it can be. Yes. And, um, and it is that, it, I don't have to be like, you know, happy-go-lucky. I don't have to be toxic positivity or shit like that. It's more in the sense of like, you know what? Yes, life is not fair all the time. Things are out of balance. But wouldn't it be nice to know that if you make it out, you can cause an impact on somebody else and maybe get them ready to what's coming. And I feel like that's almost what it feels like at the end of the day. The idea of like, it wasn't up to just mouse and circumstances and elements like that. But the idea that when you have people that love you and care for you, you can actually create a difference 
paying it forward that way. Like, mm. and, and, and that's exactly, you know, I think the message that we need right now when it comes to, to the reality, like I do, I do like reality. I, I love the, the, the healthy dose of, of, um, you know, pessimism and, 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 you know, just reality of how things are, whether people like it or not. But it's like always talking about a problem without providing a solution. And even if my solution is not perfect or is incomplete, at least it's one step forward and it's not getting stuck in the cement, you know? Yeah. Yes. The darkest hour is just before dawn. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and that's there's beauty to that you know and and there's beauty to treating that with a realism that um that really hits you home you know and and yeah it's, it's it, like the the highs needs to be as high as as the lows or the lows needs to be as high as the uh, as low as the high you promise you know i agree i agree it's balance ultimately that's it's balance can't have you can't have light without dark pain without pleasure happiness without sadness struggle without mm -hmm. joy whatever it goes on and on um okay yeah. i want to do one more question here so i just want to ask you real quick about meek mill because i thought his performance was was really poignant and uh i mean all the all the performances were really great i don't want to take anything away from anyone else but i thought it was you know, you, th you think of a, a rapper or something or an, a musical artist, you know, being an actor and never quite sure how that's going to work. You know, Bob Dylan did it a little bit and, you know, you just don't know who what they're going to be. Mm -hmm. on the but his, his screen <laughs> presence was undeniable, but also I thought he, he really handled it. So can you tell me about the choice of him? Also, he's Philly born, right? And he's playing this this very mm -hmm. you know, Baltimore story. Can you can you talk about those the work working with him? Was he trained as an actor? Yeah. This or what? So he he came he was already attached to the project before I came in. Um Mick, Mick Mill has been very outspoken. He's 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 very outspoken about bike life. You know, he 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 did his tricks, like he he does all of that stuff. He does. And um yeah, he does all that all, all of all of the, the stunts like that. And um and before I came into the project or somewhere along the line, uh Mick gets um goes to prison precisely for 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 doing a wheelie and somebody said something about that and supposedly they accused him of violating parole and he's been he's been going through that and that's why you know he became like this poster child of uh, or, or or like the face of prison reform in a way because he's he his situation was very unfair uh so for a moment we thought we we, we lost him uh he got released he came back to the project and it almost felt like, wow, what are the odds now that the character of Blacks is also a guy who rides, who loves bikes, who was in prison, who came out of prison, and is trying to do good, which is very similar to, to Mick Mill's journey uh, right now. Yeah. So I guess that level of that parallel life of blacks and make you know the difference is blacks is a mechanic and make us a rapper everything else is very similar wow. and um so we 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 really hone in on that and took advantage of the situation uh but nick is not professionally trained at all um and for me i i, I am used to working with non-actors but in the case of of Mick, you know he's doing tours he, he has responsibilities as well I didn't have the time that I would have actually loved to have with non-actors. Uh, in La Granja, with non-actors, I spent almost three months with each one of them, you know, wow. and, I, and I directed them differently because I, I knew who they, how they were and they're not trained. So the whole concept of trust is key. With Mick, it was, it was a different way of doing it. Uh, but as we started working together, understanding, you know, okay, well, maybe we treat this a little bit more like with him, like a music video, directing more like a music video style, fitting the lines and really like telling him to do different things. Like 
like the the scene where the dog dies, like he was able to actually get there uh, uh, and thinking about stuff that has happened to him in the past and just saying little things like now take a deep breath, look down, he just showed the sigh and all that, like just little things working with him that then he started getting confident. He started liking what he was seeing and, you know, the feedback also, like we, you know, he, I think he had a, he was blessed by having so, so much talented actors bouncing off with him, like Will Catlett or, or Yahi. Yes. Um, making it, making it real around. Yeah. 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 They were able to like, they were, they were giving it all and he was learning from them by the end, you know, he, he was very natural and it was all him. Like at the end of the day, it was all him. He owned it and he really pushed through, man. He, and he, he killed it. He did an amazing job, but we were able to take it there. And Jamal, the guy that plays Jamal, yes. uh, Chino, they're best friends in real life. Wow. So it's kind of like it made it work, uh, their, their whole situation. They're so good together. Because they, it, was, it was wonderful to see because like, they're, they're non-actors and they're just really giving it like without training or without rehearsing that like it was like they gave it all because they started believing in the stuff that they were doing and you can tell yeah well it was real to them i mean that's why i've always thought with acting mm-hmm. in the acting is not lying it's telling the truth you know it's when i was mm-hmm. a kid growing up people would say like use tell people to stop acting if they were insulting them they would say like stop acting <laughs> you're, you're faking it stop faking it but acting, you know, acting isn't that. And I think that's what you were able to find in, in your movie. And, mm. and I also commend you on the amount of, of characters and arcs and storylines. There was a lot to juggle in this movie. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. in the edit, that must have been really complicated to keep it all going, right? It was... It was um... I mean, it wasn't as complicated as I thought it was going to be, honestly. Because, um, you know, I guess like the first cut was almost like two hours, uh, 40 minutes, something like that. Uh, so we really, it was a matter of like shrinking it to for time purposes. Um, but I'm, I, I'm an editor as well. So coming into filming, understanding the limitations that I have, even though it's way, it was way more money that I could ever dream of to work with. Um, well, I, I, got a, I knew there were limitations. I knew there were limitations with kids hours, which I wasn't exposed before. Um, knowing that, you know, they tell you it's nine hours, but it's really five. And because they have to study for three, eat for one. So we have five hours to work with them. So Wow, with Jahi? You have to be economical with Yahi, with all the Yahi. kids. Wow, five uh, hours. Yeah, five hours to work. And, um, and you know, they, but what I like, I didn't like it, of course. But what I think it forced us to do was to be very prepared. Uh, like we spent months, um, Kate and I, writing the shot list and literally everything you see I say like 99% of everything you see was shot listed to the T, wow. knowing how we were editing it, knowing where we were going to cut and, and being economical because I needed to get performances more than pretty pictures, really. Yeah. Uh, but the, the approach that we, that we went for, you know, Kate does pretty pictures. She's phenomenal doing pretty pictures and she also moves quick. So we were able to make everything happen uh, also, with Scott Dugan, the production designer, and everybody involved, the ADs, we were able to really make it happen in a way that uh, we never uh, went overtime, overtime. And maybe we took grace a couple times, but we never really, oh, we lost so much money overtime. No, we actually, there were days that we ended early because we were so economical and the kids are so talented. <laughs> They're so talented that it was like they made it very easy for us. Yeah. Wow. You're going to, you're going to be the next Clint Eastwood. You're going to be breaking by lunch soon. <laughs> I don't we'll know see, man. <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right. Hey, I, I'm sure we could, we could keep talking and talking and, uh, and I hope we do. I hope I, I'd love to stay in touch with you. And I hope uh, we do. Hey, look, before we go, what's next for you? I would like that very much. What's next for you? Ooh, 
So right now I've been writing. I've been writing a lot. I've been developing a bunch of ideas. I guess the pandemic gave me no other choice but to get stuff out and, and, and see what the different things that might stick. Right now, I am not at the liberty to talk about different things that I'm working on, NDA and such. Gotcha. But um, 2021 and 2022 look very promising. And, uh, and it just fills me with joy that all this hard work, years of working, like are giving fruit. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be able, like I, I get to meet people like you, have conversations like this with DGA. Yes, and 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 be exposed to 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 a community and an industry that I never thought I was going to be exposed before. So, you know, all that stuff is going to happen, and I guess people will find out sooner rather than later the next projects that are coming. Uh, but right now, I was forced to swear to secrecy. Okay, uh, it's a it's a yeah. good team. You know, you know how it goes. You know how yes. it goes. It's a good team. Well, but there's there's stuff coming. So I, I, I'm here for a while, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Like we, we're going to keep doing a bunch of things. So hopefully, you know, I can, I can continue to, to, to get better, learn as I go a lot and, 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 you know, be, be around people that, that feed, feed you um, creatively and spiritually and mentally. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Us too. I, I'll speak for all the audience and say we can't wait to see uh, what you what you do next. Thanks, man. All right, and hell. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate you too. All right, thank you, everyone. That that uh, concludes this talk. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Shaka King. Rada Blank, and Tara Mealy. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.